I get to introduce myself today. I'm Rob, and uh, I'm going to speak to you from the Bible, which is always a good place to speak from. And I want to talk about this question, how is your heart? We're starting a new series today, looking at a heart that is after God's own heart. We're looking at the life of David, actually. So um, after some encouragement from my family and a gift from a friend and some leftover birthday money, I recently bought myself a Fitbit. There it is. It's a Fitbit. Uh, And it's quite incredible. I don't want to bore you with all of the data that I now have about myself, but um, it tracks my daily life in quite an amazing way. It tracks how many steps I take, how many miles I walk, the calories that I use for the day. My sleep cycles are on there. And most interestingly, my heart rate. Um, And and of course, I have now driven my family slightly mad with all the statistics that I now have at my disposal, which I have to say on the whole are largely encouraging for a man my age. Apparently, that's what it says. That's official from Fitbit. Uh, But it's the heart rate monitoring that's really caught my attention. The condition of my heart Because wearing a 24-hour heart monitor tells me all kinds of things about my heart and how it's affected by what happens in my daily life. For instance, I've discovered that my heart rate raises when I'm driving. It raises when I'm stressed or worried. It also raises when I exercise. And it slows to a very healthy pace when I'm uh, resting or sleeping and so on. All of which show that I'm doing pretty well, that I have a healthy heart, which is great. But it's just made me really conscious of my heart, of the need to guard it, to look after it, if I'm going to continue to be healthy. Which is kind of what I want to talk to you about in this series. It's about the condition of your heart, not your physical one, of course, but your heart that leans to God, the heart where the emotions are seated, the heart where uh, we, we feel things, we make decisions from that place. How is your heart? Is it healthy? Is it in good condition? You know, as we come out of lockdown and begin to return to some kind of normality, starting to see people again, coming together with others, how is your heart? That place where God is, where you commune, with God, that place in your heart. So it's kind of if your heart was a garden coming into springtime, as we are at this time, what would we find has been planted there over the last year? What will be coming through in the next few months? My garden is just bursting forth with all kinds of blossom and little buds coming through at the moment. Will it be good in your heart? Will Will it be a beautiful place to be? Is your heart a good place to be at the moment? Well, that's what we're going to be looking at over the next eight weeks as we look at the life of David in a series that we're calling David, a man after God's own heart. So how is your heart? I just want us to take a moment. Let's just pause and just maybe put your hand on your heart for a moment and just ask yourself that question. Say, How is my heart? How am I doing there? Is it well with my heart? Is it well with my soul, as the old hymn goes? 
Father, will you just come and speak to our hearts right now? Thank you, Lord. Lord, we just ask you to give us a good MOT over this next eight weeks. Come and move in our hearts, Father. Come and change our hearts where they need changing. Come and heal our hearts where they need healing. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Amen. So we're talking about David, a man after God's own heart. That's how Samuel described him to King Saul, the man who was to succeed him as king, because Saul was about to lose his kingdom because he disobeyed God. And uh, I'm reading to you from 1 Samuel 13, uh, verses 12 to 14. And Samuel says to King Saul, he says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. And so God says through Samuel, I found another man to take your place, Saul. A man whose heart is aligned to mine. A heart that runs after me. A heart that's like mine. Because the heart, not the outward appearance, is what makes all the difference to God. So what does it mean to have a heart like David? To be a man or a woman that is after God's own heart. Well, at the time Samuel spoke these words to Saul, I'm not sure that he knew, actually, because he'd not met David yet. And when he does, he doesn't know quite to look for because he has to work his way through all of David's brothers first before he finally gets his man, as we'll see next week. So at this point, Samuel is speaking purely prophetically. But what we do know is that David's heart was nothing like Saul's, the king that God had rejected. So by way of introduction, let's take a look at Saul and some of the history that's led up to this point. And this will give us a proper context for the series. King Saul, I mean, on the face of it, he seemed to have all the right qualifications to be king. He was physically impressive. Samuel says he was without equal among the Israelites, a head and taller, a head taller than any of the others. That's 1 Samuel 9 2. So he's literally a man who was head and shoulders above the rest. But he was also really humble, it seems, because when Samuel first tells him about God's plan for him to be king, he says, But I'm a Benjamin. Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel and my clan is the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why would you say such a thing to me? And this wasn't false modesty either because when the moment came for his appointment he's nowhere to be found until God tells Samuel where to find him hiding amongst the baggage in chapter 10. 
And from his earliest battles, it seems that he had all the makings of a great military leader. In chapter 11, for instance, he conducts a daring nighttime assault on the city of Jabesh. And he rescues them from the Ammonites as the Spirit of God comes upon him in power. In verse 6 there. And this isn't the first time the Spirit of God comes upon him either. On another occasion, the Spirit fell on Saul as he met a procession of prophets. There you go. That's the proper collective noun for uh, prophets, a procession. A procession of prophets. And he immediately began prophesying powerfully, much to the surprise of everybody around him. So Saul started out so well, and his reign was pretty successful over his 42 years compared to that of the many kings who came after him. But by the time of his death on Mount Gilboa, he'd pretty much lost his grip on reality. He became increasingly insecure and paranoid. He tried to kill one of his most loyal captains, who was David, and in his delusions even tried to kill his son Jonathan with a spear. He also lost his anointing from God. At a certain time, one Samuel tells us, God removed his spirit from him, replacing it with an evil spirit. That's in 1 Samuel 16, 14. And I think that is one of the most unsettling passages in the Old Testament about any leader's demise and downfall. So what went wrong? Well, it all started here in 1 Samuel 13, the point at which Samuel announces God's other choice of king, a king after God's own heart. Because what happened in this chapter showed us that there were some significant problems with Saul's heart. See, Saul had been told to wait seven days for Samuel's arrival before offering a sacrifice which would confirm Saul's kingship. But Samuel was delayed. And so Saul and the people started to get anxious. And then Saul panicked because his army was disappearing all around him just before a big battle. And and so he thought, well, I don't think Samuel's going to make it, meaning the sacrifice wasn't going to be made before the battle. And that means we won't have the favor of God. And so he did the sacrifice himself. What have you done? Samuel cries out when he finally arrives. He says, you've acted foolishly. It, was, it wasn't just that Samuel had disobeyed God, Saul had disobeyed God by not waiting. He'd also overstepped his authority because a fundamental requirement of his kingship was to never function independently of the law. That's God's command. And not to function independently of the prophets. That means spiritual leadership either. And on top of this, he'd apparently given in to fear, fear of man, fear of failure, fear of the loss of face, fear of all kinds of things, putting his own pride and reputation above God's instructions and commands. And there was no repentance either. At the end of chapter 13, there is no record of Saul's repentance, uh, which becomes a growing theme during his kingship, along with his pride. Otherwise, who knows, God may have spared him. Saul's pride becomes even clearer two chapters later, where after a further military victory, this time over the Amalekites, he builds a monument for himself in his own honor. That's chapter 15, and that's pretty narcissistic by any standards. And Samuel isn't impressed, as you can imagine, and he accuses the king of arrogance and rebellion resulting from pride. 
And Saul finally asked for forgiveness, although if you read between the lines, it seems that this is more about Saul's fear of what people might think rather than having a genuinely repentant heart. And it just seems that at every stage, Saul is just too proud to humble himself. So how is your heart? (laughs) You know, how do you respond when you get it wrong? What about when you are corrected? And also, how do you handle success? Because actually, that's what was going on with Saul. He was actually pretty successful. How do you handle success? Do you still depend upon God or do you start to depend on your own ways and your own thinking? You see, our reactions in these moments say more about the condition of our hearts than our actions. See, Saul's biggest problem wasn't the gifting he had. It wasn't the opportunities he'd been given. He just needed a different heart. Saul's heart was mostly concerned with Saul. What Saul valued most was his reputation and glory, not God's. Saul was his own problem. And his eventual madness and the presence of an evil spirit were the result of his pride and self-reliance. Saul wasn't a man after God's own heart, but God had reserved for himself a man who was, David, a man after God's own heart. So let's talk uh, about David. I mean, David's passionate pursuit of God is so obvious, isn't it? Because his heart is just scattered throughout the Psalms, isn't it? There it is, laid out so vulnerably, so fearlessly, actually, in the songs of praise, the repentance, love, fear, and anger. There's, there's a psalm, it seems, for every season of life. He wrote at least 75 psalms and they express so well time and time again what it means to run after God like I love Psalm 72 Psalm 72 verse 22 says I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness my God I will sing praise to you with the lyre holy one of Israel my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you I whom you have delivered my tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long we've got Psalm 63 You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you with my whole being. It longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And you kind of hear Samuel's prophecy about this coming king. And and then you read the Psalms and you think, wow, this is definitely a man after God's own heart. And then at the end of David's life, it's such a different uh, closing to Saul's because it ends with these incredible affirmations and promises that God makes to him. Promises that have never been made to any other man and never will be. In 1 Chronicles 17, this is the promise that God gives to David. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you one of your sons and he will establish his kingdom he's the one who will build a house for me and I will establish 
establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him. He will be my son. I will never take my love from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. I mean, that is a phenomenal promise that God makes to David. And you think, this is a man, surely a man after God's own heart that would make such incredible promises. A throne established forever. And of course, this is about Jesus. I mean, what an honor. What a privileged life that man led to have been so affirmed by the Father. And then there's David's beautiful response. In verse 16, it says that King David went in and sat before the Lord. He says, who am I, Lord? And what is my family that you've brought me this far? As if it were not enough in your sight, my God. You've spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I was the most exalted man. I mean, what can I say? God, what can David say for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. You know your servant. Lord, for the sake of your servant, according to your will, you've done this great thing and made known all these great promises. And you think, wow, what humility. This David is really someone to emulate. Look at how he started. Look at how he ended his days. I want a heart like his. I want to be like David. But then there's the bit in between. And David kind of indicates it and says, you know your servant. You know what I'm really like, God. And it is quite confusing because you've got this beginning, you've got this end, you've got these wonderful psalms, but then these pretty confusing stories from his life to such an extent that you start to wonder, did David really deserve a title like this? Because there's a whole lot of things there. Like the time, for example, that David lied when he told Ahimelech, the priest, he was on a secret mission from the king when in fact he was running away from the king. I mean, this is one of several occasions when it seems that David was prone to deception. And then there was a time David was a traitor when he fought for his enemies, the the Philistines, for 16 months. And strangely, as one commentator points out, he wrote no psalms during this period and, and the inspiration appears to have dried up. And then there was a time David was so negligent as a leader in the transport of the ark because the ark was handled carelessly, carried on the cart instead of on a priest's shoulders, and Uzzah died when God broke out on him. You don't want leaders killing you like that, do you? And then David was a consummate adulterer. I mean, how many wives and concubines he had? Too many to number. But of course, the most famous of his moral failures is the scandalous affair with Bathsheba, a woman he saw bathing, lusted after, and then seduced. And David was a murderer, and I'm not talking about the battles that he fought either, but the one he committed in order to cover up his affair with Bathsheba. David arranged for her husband, Uriah, to be sent to the front line of the battle so that he will be killed. And also David wasn't a great dad. He failed as a father. He failed to discipline his son, Amnon, for raping Tamar, his half-sister. This led to Absalom's rebellion who murdered Amnon in revenge and then tried to steal David's throne. I mean, what kind of family was that? And also David grew quite proud late in life against his commander Joab's advice. David insisted on counting his army, his 1.3 million troops apparently. And that became a source of pride and false security for David. 
And he lost some favour from God for this, who sent a plague which wiped out 70,000 men. And you look at this period and you think, oh my goodness, that's quite a list of disqualifications. And it makes you wonder how much we can really learn from David's example. I mean, you wouldn't want David as one of your worship leaders, would you? You wouldn't want him as the pastor of the church. He's a shepherd, and so he should be good at shepherding. But you wouldn't want him as a pastor of the church with those character issues. Or you wouldn't even want him as one of our politicians or the next king. Well, okay, maybe those are bad examples. But really, how could David be described as a man after God's own heart and yet live like this? From the way he lived, you'd have thought that he should have lost his position of leadership, been executed for adultery and murder, separated from God and eternally condemned. And yet, and yet he was forgiven. He was restored. He had a long and successful reign and ended his life with these incredible promises of eternal significance. How do we explain this? How do we explain this? David's life is a picture to us of his incredible grace. God's incredible mercy and grace. Because mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace is when God gives us what we do not deserve. It's a testament to a man who is responsive and has a contrite heart. Unlike Saul, we can see how time and time again David repented and owned up to his sins, his faults and his failures. I mean, have you read Psalm 51? I knew it inside out as a teenager. Psalm 51. David's story also encourages us because we can see that to be a person after God's own heart doesn't mean perfection. It does mean humility, though. It does mean a love of justice. It means a heart of worship and all these other attributes that we see in David's heart that we're going to look at in this series. And I think these things are going to help us to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Because time and time again, David points us to Jesus, the perfect king who carries God's heart into the whole world. And that's certainly how Paul uses David as an example when he preached at the synagogue at Pisidian in Antioch in Acts 13. After referring to David as the king after God's own heart, Paul says from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the saviour Jesus as he promised. And the remainder of Paul's message was all about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and how all of that fulfilled what God had promised to his people Israel. Paul mentioned David later in the sermon, but only to contrast him with the living King Jesus. He says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he died. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, did not see decay. And so I think there's great value in using David's life as an example for us today. But there's an even greater value in allowing allowing David to point us to Jesus, which is what we want to do through this whole series. So let me finish with this, just asking again, dear friends, brothers and sisters, how is your heart?
today? Is it healthy? Is it responsive? Is it humble and open to God? Is it after God? How are you doing? You know, despite all your failings and flaws, your disappointments and regrets, can you also say that you are a man or a woman with a heart that is after God's, like God's, pursuing him? Now, perhaps you need a Samuel-like prophetic word spoken over your heart again today. You know, I love the fact that Samuel spoke this way about David even before he met him. He says, there's a man coming after you whose heart is a heart that runs after God. And I just want to speak that over you. I just want to speak it over you prophetically and say that your heart is a heart that runs after God. Despite what's happened, despite the difficulties, despite the disappointments, I speak to your heart and say you have a heart that runs after God. And I just want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit right now to come and be your heart monitor. Not a Fitbit, but a you know, a Holy Spirit version of the Fitbit. Uh, Lord Jesus, will you just come and monitor my heart during this time? Will you come and make sure that it speeds up at the right time, it slows down at the right time, that my heart would be healthy in pursuit of you, Jesus? Father, will you just come and spill our, still, I can't get my words out, come and stir our hearts. Will you just come and stir our hearts? Will you come and heal our hearts? Will you come and strengthen our hearts? Will you come and speak to our hearts, Father? Holy Spirit, let your heart monitor run through our veins at this time and bring us back to you where we've gone astray, Lord. Draw us to you where we need to be drawn again. Father, draw us into your presence. Draw us into worship. We so missed worshipping together. But Father, cause our hearts to be softened anyway. Cause our hearts to run after you. Cause our hearts to run after you, Lord. Praise your holy name. Thank you, Father. Amen.